Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm that biblical, biblical theology, theology study the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian is not optional Cause when you talk about Christ you're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key It's following the Bible storyline And the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine What he starts, he finishes with dedication A work of art, from Genesis to Revelation From God's creation Creation. To man's fall to redemption to consummation His designs and structure each time will fluster What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest greatest story story ever ever told told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Palou, and we have a great show show in store for you guys today. A little tongue twister there. (laughs) Um, 
before we get to that real quick, let me give our Facebook page. Uh, if you have not liked this yet on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze. That's facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooze. Now, if you go there, um, you're going to see a lot of our old podcasts that we have done. We've got a lot of former shows uh was actually looking through the archives today, and uh, we've been doing the show for two for two years, right around two years. And so there's a good variety of shows uh, to listen to. We've done um, several debates uh, between atheists and Christians. We had Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience on. We have done a Roman Catholic versus Protestant uh, debate on Sola Scriptura. Uh, one of the things is in, in October, uh, being that we are a Protestant show, I don't hide that uh, at all. We are definitely Protestant, and I think there's, there are issues with uh, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. I don't hide that at all. And uh, during October, we will do a whole Reformation month of why uh, why certain doctrines matter, why Sola Scriptura matters, why... Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, why those things are important and why we, we don't think that the Reformation is, is over and probably need a new Reformation, to be honest with you. Um, but we also have a, uh, have done a debate with Chris Dates and my friend Mike Willenborg on annihilationism. And uh, in fact, we will be doing another debate come July 15th. Uh, between Nate Taylor, who is one of the favorite guests on this show, uh, he he has done he did the debate with Devin Rose on Sola Scriptura, as well as uh, Jordan Fischel on Calvinism, Arminianism, and uh, Nate's just a, a good friend of mine, and he's a brilliant guy. And uh, him and Chris uh, are going to lock horns. And uh, people who, if you've ever listened to Chris Date, you know that guy is is uh, very sharp. And, uh, I mean, he's he's a good guy. I, I really like listening to his stuff. And, and he will definitely challenge uh, some of the views you may have held in the past. So July 15th, be looking for that. Uh, that will be a great debate. Without further ado, I need to jump to our first guest. We were, are going to be doing a new segment uh, every month. I have asked my friend Marcia Montenegro uh, to call in once a month. And uh, she actually, her shows are some of the highest rated shows that we, we have done. And uh, that is because she is an expert on the occult and the new age. And she has a, a new, or not a new, but a, a ministry um, answers for, for, uh, for the new age, um, which equips Christians to deal with some of these issues. So she's going to be joining us once a month to kind of tell us what's, what's the latest uh, in the world of the occult and things maybe we need to be looking out for. So, Marsha, are you there? I sure am. How are you, oh, Devin? Oh, it's good to hear your voice. <laughs> oh, it's good to hear yours, and thank you for having me on again. Yes, I was I was just saying, uh, it's funny because your shows seem to be some of the highest rated uh, that of all the shows that we've done. Uh, so you know that people... is great to hear. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I should I should probably tell my guests that so they are a little encouraged. Uh, our, our last show within one week had over 300 downloads. 
So wow. people like this. Wow. Yeah, people like this topic and like this subject. And uh, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little introduction and and maybe sure. what you're, you're going to be doing for us uh, on a on a full time basis, I guess now uh, during the month. Okay. Sure. Um, yes, I uh, was in the New Age for a number of years, uh, really around twenty. Um, depending on how you want to count when I got in it. It could even be a little more. And um, I was also during um, the last eight years of that, I was a professional astrologer. But prior to that, I had I had become involved in some Eastern belief systems, particularly uh, Zen Buddhism. And that was my worldview. It was a combination of kind of Hinduism, New Age, with Zen Buddhism, and with astrology. And, um, you know, it all it all worked together for me. <laughs> so uh, I, um, I did that uh, very seriously, and it was, I felt, my life's calling. Well, the Lord intervened, and I became a Christian, um, and eventually that led to full-time ministry, so my ministry is Christian Answers for the New Age. And um, you and Melissa have kindly um, invited me to come on once a month uh, to update people on what's going on in the world of the New Age and the world of the occult. So um, I appreciate that because there's a lot going on. So I don't think I'll run out of things to say. Um, and, and this evening I wanted to um, uh, talk about mindfulness because it is really becoming huge. Great. So that was my topic, and I may, I may do this topic again sometime for sure, but I, I wanted to start with that because I had some very current things to say. Absolutely. Please please do so. Enlighten us. Okay. Just plunge right in, huh? <laughs> um, okay. Well, first of all, um, let me explain what it is. Uh, I... Um, I do have three articles on it for people who want to read more on my website, ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. Mindfulness is a meditation and worldview uh, based in Buddhism. Uh, It's it's related to the Buddhist belief system, which is that you are attached to this world and continue to have rebirth uh, through your desires, which which by desire they mean an attachment. They mean a grasping at this life. And so if, if there's something in this life that draws you and also your perceptions of being part of this life, then that will continue the attachment and continue the rebirth. So the solution for it, since um, suffering, this world only has suffering, Uh, the solution is to get out of rebirth patterns. And the way to do that, or one of the major ways, is to cultivate detachment. And one of the primary ways to cultivate detachment is this meditation um, and worldview called mindfulness. So in in the Buddhist sense, it is a tool for coming eventually to an awareness of what true reality is, which is not this reality. 
and in fact to become aware that yourself is not really who you are and your thoughts are not you. So the technique is um, specifically uh, designed to make you realize that your thinking and your mind is not you. You are independent of your thoughts. Those are just being um, sort of projected from this attachment to believing that they are your thoughts. So it all has to do with this false reality, and mindfulness is supposed to help you get out of that. Now, the way it's being presented is um, as a secular way to be calm, um, to de-stress, to have more focus. And now they're coming out with even more things that it's supposed to do. It's supposed to help you learn better. It helps you interact with people better. Um, You know, it's almost becoming like a cure-all for any um, emotional disturbance or anxiety. And it has already, it's already been pushed in the health field for quite a while. John Kabat-Zinn started it in the University of um, Massachusetts Medical Center or the Boston Medical Center. I kind of get them confused. They may be the same thing. I'm not sure. But he started it in 1979, and um, it's become huge now, and it's called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Uh, It's in in over 200 hospitals. Now, that's been going on for a while, and I have been tracking it for a number of years. Um, Now, since then it has started getting into other areas. So they started teaching it in prisons and um, in schools. And so some schools that were charter schools and more able to do this kind of thing in public schools started doing it. Then some public schools started doing it. Now it's getting into the business world. Um, It's very big at Google. Um, Google employees are constantly having seminars on mindfulness. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn has been there himself. Now, there are other people who promote mindfulness. He's not the only one. Um, the Vietnamese monk, Sich Nhat Thanh, who's written several books, um, one of which I've read, um, teaches mindfulness. The Dalai Lama, even though he's Tibetan Buddhist um, and not Zen Buddhist, pushes mindfulness and Eastern meditation at his Mind and Life Institute, and he has these big uh, conferences where he brings in the neuroscientists uh, to get them interested in this and to do brain studies. And so now neuroscientists, you will notice that in a lot of articles on mindfulness, if you just Google mindfulness, you're, you're going to get just uh, you're going to get an endless number of articles almost. <laughs> um, you will notice that a lot of them, you could Google mindfulness neuroscience, and then you could see how the neuroscientists are very much involved in this. Not all of them, but I mean a lot of them are. Um, this is partly due to the efforts of the Dalai Lama. And Goldie Hawn, the actress, um, started a, an organization several years ago called Mind Up for Schools. And this is specifically to get uh, mindfulness into the school. And she has, she has gotten it in. Now, there's one more person who's come on board that will be interesting to people, I think. Um, Representative Tim Ryan, a U.S. congressman from the state of Ohio, 
became a mindful convert, mindfulness convert. And he wrote a book called A Mindful Nation. And Paul Ryan? uh, No, Tim Ryan. Did I say Paul? Tim, or maybe I just said Ryan. I may not have said the first name. I meant to say, if I could say Tim Ryan. Right, so I wasn't sure if it was the guy who ran with Mitt Romney last year. That's what I was wondering. I was I, like, wow. I, I didn't, think, I didn't I think Paul Ryan is from, I think he's from Minnesota. So that's why I said Ohio, so that okay. people would know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I know I constantly get that. People are always thinking I'm talking about the wrong person. That's why I'm trying to be, I try to be specific. Right. Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio. And he wrote this book called A Mindful Nation. And um, his goal, his goal is to get this in all the schools in the United States. Now, two districts in Ohio, school districts already have it in place. And they are now, I can see, on the verge of trying to get it into the county where I live. And this is what I wanted to bring up because I want people to realize how real this is. This is not just some theoretical thing that people, you know, behind the scenes are talking about. They're actually doing something. Um, the, the Fairfax County Public School System, which is where I live, co-sponsored a seminar on June 5th. It was held at the high school that has the largest auditorium in the county. It seats 1,200 people. And they held a conference there on June 5th uh, to introduce mindfulness. Um, they sent emails to every teacher in Fairfax County and to the parent of every student in Fairfax County promoting this. I went with a friend to see what it was going to be like, and it, it was very spiritual because of, you can't get away from the fact that mindfulness is Buddhist. Um, the first speaker they had was Tara Brock, who is described on her own website as a teacher of Buddhist meditation and spiritual awakening. Now, I already knew about her because the Washington Post had had a big article on her several months ago. And her organization, her meditation institute, is very big in this area, and people are going and taking all these meditation classes from her. So she's already kind of, I don't think most people know who she is, but she's not an unknown person. She gave the opening talk. She led the audience in two little mini meditations. Of course, I did not participate. Um, in the beginning of the first one, uh, my friend and I heard a chime. And this is what they're doing in a lot of the schools. If you, you want to look up videos on the Internet, you can see videos. There are tons of them of where they're doing this in schools, even kindergarten. And they'll often yeah. they have a chime. And then you'll see them, how they lead the children into closing their eyes, etc. There's different ways of doing it. But, um, you know, it's not always the same. I want to point that out. But what they're trying to do is get you to – the goal of this is, to, is basically to stop thinking. Um, you, they say become aware of the moment that you're in and aware of what you're doing. And you can also do this when you're, you're not um, – you can do this with anything, like, uh, like for example, here, um, here is an orange. And I think in one of the videos I saw, they, were, they had given slices of orange to the children. I can't remember if it was orange or apple, but it was some kind of fruit. And then they said, okay, okay put this, feel it in your hand. 
just don't think about anything else. Just feel it in your hand. And then the teacher said, okay, now put it in your mouth. And so they all put it in their mouth. And, and she said, no, don't chew it yet. Just feel it. Feel the juices go in your mouth, et cetera. Okay, this was all done very slowly. Then start chewing it and think, you know, feel the juices and think about, the, you know, the whole orange and, and that it came from the land or whatever. And so they, they give you these little suggestions as you're doing it. Um, this is a Buddhist exercise. I read this this in a um, Buddhist book back when I was in the New Age, <laughs> and since then I've read it too. And this is a meditation technique. So what this does, okay, now I know people are probably wondering, I'm going to leave this whole school situation. Um, I, I just want to say I have I have been in contact with my representative on the school board and brought up my concerns. And at Mark, first I Mark got said, kind of a standard. Mm-hmm. Oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, before you, okay. we leave the school, uh, I'll say, I okay. want to ask you a question. Okay. But go ahead. Um, I got the standard reply. And so I wrote back and um, I pointed some things out and she wrote back and said she would look into it. So that's where it stands right now. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I felt that I had to speak up. Um, so I'm waiting to see um, what is said to me um, after this. Yeah, what was well, your question? It, it, yeah, my nephew, who is five years old and is in kindergarten, uh, was over here the other day and we were talking, and he said something that was very shocking to me. And uh, he was talking about um, during their break or during the relaxing time and, and how they are told to sit with the, with their legs crossed, close their eyes, and think of their secret word. And then oh as they goodness. think of their secret... Yeah, it gets worse. And then as they think of their secret word, they were supposed to imagine um, certain animals... And these animals, uh, they were supposed to have a certain voice and would talk with them and interact with them. And oh, I, I just I thought that was terrible when I was when I was listening yes. to that. Yeah, what that is. Yeah, I don't know if his parents are Christians or not, but it would be good if they told him to, um, if they could either opt him out or told him, if he knows how to pray or something during that instead, because what that is, that is very bad. That's guided imagery. And actually that's been in the schools. That started coming into the Atlanta public schools right after I became a believer. And this is back in the early 90s. And they started doing it then. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the paper, and I said parents should be told about this and they should, it should be pointed out that this is a spiritual exercise. And they did publish my letter. But um, this, is being, this has been done in a lot of schools. It was being done in the schools up here when I moved up here with my son. Um, and I opted him out of those, those things because I did not want him exposed to that. And what, that's gonna, what that will do with some children is it will introduce them uh, possibly to a spirit guide in the form of an animal. Um, wow. And I had I had spirit guides. They're real. I'm not trying to be sensational. Um, right. Everyone in the New Age and in the occult has a spirit guide. A spirit guides are fallen angels. Um, 
But uh, so that's, yeah, that is not mindfulness, but it is a guided meditation. And even if it isn't mindfulness in the, in the school, a lot of other kinds of meditation like that are getting in. Um, and I, I, know par- I know that parents and people are probably wondering, well, why is Marcia warning us about this? What is wrong? Maybe it truly relaxes the children. Maybe, you know, it helps them focus or concentrate. Well, here are my concerns. Number one, this is like a mind conditioning. They are trying to modify behavior through playing around with your child's mind. Now, whether there are good results or not, to me, is irrelevant. I don't want anyone playing with my child's mind. You know, right. I, you know, I don't, I don't want that happening. That's that's what's going yeah. on. Um, the other thing is, it will give, it will give um, people who are not Christians a false sense of peace. And uh, this will be the way that they find that they try to find peace. And you can feel peaceful when you do this. I totally acknowledge that because I did, oh, I forgot to say, I did mindfulness meditation for 12 years. So I know how it feels and I know how it can make you feel like you're doing something helpful and like you're doing something spiritual and you can feel that you're getting a benefit from it. So this will give people a counterfeit spiritual spirituality. So that's that should be a big problem for Christians. Christians should not be for anything that offers a spirituality. Um, so those are two of my major my major concerns. And the other concern is a practical concern. Um, instead of spending time and money and resources on teaching this, let's use it for something educational. You know. Um, <laughs> As in education, <laughs> you know, I know a lot of schools are um, having budget problems, and so what are they doing? They're cutting out music classes, they're cutting out um, art classes, they're cutting out language classes. You know, use the money for that. Keep your music and art programs, and don't right. be mindful. Of it. You know, don't don't use money for that if you say you can't sustain the art or music program. So that's my other objection. So there are three reasons, and I go into this in more detail in my articles, and I'm continuing to, you know, watch this. It has just become so huge I can't keep up with it anymore because it's getting so popular. So I'm afraid of it getting into the church. Yeah, we can post that article, too, uh, on on the Theology Matters Facebook page as well. Uh, Okay. People that like the the article, so if you send that to me, I, I will make sure I get that up tonight. Okay, I will send you. Um, I have three. Do you want me to send you just one? I have mindfulness oh, for me. children, and mindfulness goes to kindergarten, and I have two others. Yes, yeah, send them. Send them all. I'm sure our okay. listeners would love to, <laughs> okay. to read all your work. Do uh, you want me to just uh, uh, private message you, or post them on your page, or? Yeah, yeah. If you want to private message me, I'll make sure we get those up in okay. the on the main uh, Theology Matters page. Yeah, we'll put them up tonight. Okay. okay, great. Thank you so much. I think people should have more information on this. Yes, we want people to know, and especially, like I say, with parents and and this kind of being put into the schools. Um, yeah, that's not that's not good. That's not a good thing. So we need to be able to. Uh, you know, you had made a comment a while back in one of the Facebook pages that uh, with apologetics, 
you know, we're we're dealing a lot with agnosticism, atheism, um, even even maybe Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, but the New Age and the occult is kind of often overlooked. And I think you're right. I think I think you're right because most people in America are not atheists or agnostics. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's growing, but most people uh, believe in some sort of a type of a higher being that would probably be very consistent with the occult, right? Yes, the New Age. Um, yeah, I would I would probably tend to call it the New Age, but there's a lot of overlap with the with the New Age and the occult. And I think there is the the New Age is more attractive to most people, and I think it has influenced more people than atheism. Um, I'm not saying um, we should ignore atheism because we shouldn't, right. because especially because it's had some very aggressive um, spokespeople lately. <laughs> but and we need to respond to that. But I do think a lot of people are unaware of how widespread the New Age has become and how much it's infiltrated our culture. So the thing is, is that because the New Age can kind of take on um, guises, and it will use language that we're familiar with, but it means something else by them. This is how it's gotten into the health field. So, for example, you, have you noticed how people use the word wellness all the time? And in the health field, that's become the big word now, and with um, even health insurance companies are saying wellness. And well, that's I... a word that comes out of the new age, and maybe I can talk about that next time. Because so, I don't uh, want to get started now. Because my time's up, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds good, Marcia. We appreciate you coming on uh, the show, and I think what it's going to be the third Thursday of every month, or second Thursday, if that, or if that works for you, uh huh. Whatever works All for right. you. Yes, and okay, we will uh, put a link up to your website and get those articles up there. And uh, really appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Devin. I look forward to future sessions with you. All right. Thanks again. God bless. God bless you. All right, Good folks. Night. And uh, coming up, we have uh, Dr. Braxton Hunter on, and we're going to be doing some apologetics and looking at some of uh, some of the material in his book. And what we'll do is we'll go ahead and take a break for a, a few minutes and let people go ahead and do what they need to do, and then we will be back with... Uh, Dr. Hunter. Hi, I'm Frank Turek. There are four major questions we cover in it. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist seminar. The first question is, does truth exist? This book, the Bible, can't be true if truth doesn't exist or if it's just true for you but not for me or all truth is relative. We're going to show in the first part of the seminar that truth does exist and you can know it. Because, you know, if truth doesn't exist, then this book, The God Delusion, can't be true either. But we're going to show that the book could be true. So could this be true? So we cover, does truth exist first? The second question is, does God exist? The Bible can't be true if God doesn't exist. If there is no God, you might as well throw this book away and every other book that talks about God. But we're going to show, through two scientific arguments and one philosophical argument, that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator out there, and we're not going to use the Bible to show you that evidence. We're just going to give you evidence and let you see where it leads. The third question is, are miracles possible? Again, this book can't be true if miracles are not possible. If miracles are not possible, throw this book away and every other book that talks about miracles. 
we're going to see that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle of all has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. We're going to show you that evidence, and then we're going to deal with David Hume's argument against miracles and show you that Hume was not only wrong, there is good evidence to believe in miracles. The fourth and final question is, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer. If truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, or miracles are not possible. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if miracles actually occurred in the first century to authenticate Jesus and his apostles as truly being from God. We can look at the 27 handwritten Greek manuscripts we call the New Testament and see if they're historically reliable. If they are, and we will show you evidence that indeed they are, then we can say that the entire Old Testament is true as well. You'll see why when you come to the seminar, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Please come and bring your friends. See you there. Oh, I forgot one more thing. If I time the seminar exactly right, there'll be no time for your questions. No, no, no. There will be time for your questions, so please come with your questions. Whether you're a Christian, an atheist, or anyone in between, we're going to try and answer your questions. So there will be time for that. Hope to see you at the seminar. Thanks. All right, folks, and uh, that was a promo for Cross-Examined. Uh, you can find their ministry at crossexamined.org as well as on Facebook. And uh, every summer they host a training. It's a three-day training course called the <clears throat> Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. And I was actually able to go last summer. had a good friend pay for me and was able to go. It is, it's a little pricey. I mean, it's like four or $500, but um, they do bring in some of the best apologists around. Uh, Dr. Uh, I'm trying to think. Dr. Turk, of course, he's there. Uh, Greg Kokel, Brett Conkel. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace was there for the first time last year, and I've got to say, Jay Warner Wallace was, was one of my absolute favorites. I mean, it was just it was fascinating how he approached that whole um, that whole topic of the resurrection, and he's doing so kind of from a cold case detective um, method. It was it was really amazing. I mean, it was it was one of the best talks I've I've ever heard. So this is going to be in the Charlotte uh, area. It's going to be at Southern Evangelical Seminary, actually where I go to school at. And uh, you know, we had people that flew out from California last year. Uh, just to go to this training. So what they do is they go over the 12 points that prove Christianity is true, and that is based on the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And so they'll they'll teach you how to how to do these talks and kind of equip you, uh, and then at the end of the, the three-day series, you're, you're able to uh, get a certificate, and then you'll be a certified cross-examined instructor. You can go to schools, colleges, uh, churches, and present this material, so it's definitely worth it. So I would encourage people to to uh, at least think about doing it. You can find more at uh, crossexamine.org. So let's move into the second section of our program, and tonight I am really excited to have uh, my friend Dr. Braxton Hunter on. And Dr. Hunter is a professor of apologetics at Trinity College of the Bible, uh, Theological Seminary in Newburgh. Uh, Indiana, and he holds a BA in expository preaching, an MA in theology, and a PhD in Christian apologetics. And I uh, met Dr. Hunter at a uh, youth rally 
uh, or a youth conference. I don't know what you would call it, but uh, met him there and, and uh, had the had the pleasure of meeting him and got to talk to them a little bit. So, Dr. Hunter, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for having me on the program. I've been looking forward to this. Man, it's good to hear your voice again. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Well, I'm excited to be here. You've got a great ministry going, and I've been trying to acquaint myself with it. And um, not only do you have great programming, but you offer such great resources. So it's really an honor to be here. Oh, well, I appreciate that, and I'm I'm uh, very happy to offer your stuff as some of those uh, some of those resources. So, did I leave anything out there in the in the introduction? I know you're married, and and uh, I'm not sure how many kids you have. Um, we have two children. Uh, we have two girls. Jolie is our oldest, six years old, and Jacqueline, our youngest, and she's three years old. So I've got my hands full. Uh, try and handle that. I'm not sure the defense of the faith even compares to being a parent. <laughs> yeah, three women in the house. Man, you need you need special prayer. It's actually worse than that because we've got a female cat as well, and I'm a dog person, so I'm really outmatched. Yeah, everything's working against you there. Uh, so tell us, Doctor Hunter, um, maybe a little bit. How did you? How did you? become a Christian, and how did you get into apologetics? Well, it's uh, the first half of that question may seem a little bit boring, although it's certainly not boring to me. I was raised in a uh, household where my father was a megachurch pastor. He pastored the Mammoth North Jacksonville Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, until I was 10 years old. And, and so I had a very strong upbringing. I, my heart goes out to folks that didn't have a good, solid Christian um, upbringing like that. I, I, I love to minister to them and help them as much as I can, but I just really can't relate in one sense because I had I feel like I won the lottery with my parents. And um, on top of that, uh, I, I gave my life to Christ at a very young age. Um, I, I was six years old. I still believe with all my heart that that was uh, when it really happened. Um, I experienced times of doubt like I think all Christians do. But um, but so so pretty vanilla testimony um, from that perspective. But then after I went into the ministry, I, I, I was ordained to the gospel ministry um, when I was 20 years old. I went to pastor my first church in Jacksonville, Florida, and, um, and, and was really starting off with absolutely no apologetic training whatsoever and was uh, and really didn't, didn't have a need for it as far as I knew at the time. I, I had not encountered any real aggressive atheists, and um, I thought if I did, the way you do that is just shove the Romans' road down their throat, and, you know, that'll, that'll solve it. That's, that's kind of how I was trained. And, um, but then at, at some point, my childhood best friend or, or a high school best friend of mine um, had become an, a homosexual, and that had led to a degradation in his faith to the point that he became an atheist. And... Um, and, and we had come from a very conservative Christian background. We, at that point, after I was 10 years old, my father had gone into evangelism, and I, uh, we had moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and I, we actually were going to school in Mount Juliet 
which is near Lebanon, and Lebanon is where all of the Cracker Barrel products and all of the Lifeway products go through a warehouse in Lebanon. So if you're in a place where Cracker Barrel and Lifeway have to go through, you know you're in conservative America right there. <laughs> and so, um, and so, so my friend who, who had become an atheist was raised in a conservative Christian household. He had gone to a, a Southern Baptist church that was very conservative, and we had gone to a Christian high school together. And so it really shook my world when he began to uh, challenge my faith with his newly found uh, worldview that was atheistic. And so as a result of that, it, 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 it forced me um, to, into a study of Christian apologetics. I went back and looked at all the theistic arguments, all the evidences for the resurrection, and I came out the other side only uh, bolstered in my faith. Now, I went through times of doubt and, um, and things like that, and we could talk more about that if you want to, but, but really all that did was serve to make me more firm in my faith. And so that, mm. those things uh, were what led to the position I'm now in. Wow. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, it, was your, it was your doubt that uh, actually led to a more firm faith. Ex- explain that a, bit, a little bit. How does, how does that work? Sure. So people may not, not understand that. Sure. Uh, so I think this is something that a lot of church folks, especially uh, maybe lay people, are somewhat unprepared for because, let's face it, um, unfortunately there's not enough Christian apologetics training in our churches at, at the grassroots level. And so I had never really been exposed to much of that. And so when someone very passionately and uh, bombastically began to attack my faith, it, um, it, it really shook me and, and caused some doubt. Now, I don't know, I don't know what the view is of, uh, of those that might be listening, but I, I think that it is one of the devil's favorite ways to attack the faithful is to attack them with doubt about the truth of the Christian worldview. And experiencing doubt does not mean you've lost your salvation, but, um, but it's something that we all go through. And I think God can bring something beautiful out of that. And so the way that my faith was bolstered is that when I experienced that doubt, it put me in a position to really examine at a deeper level the evidences and the reasons for belief. And so uh, that doubt was an avenue for coming out on the other side stronger than I had been. Yeah, it, it really forces you to to uh, study some of those things. I was I just posted an article yesterday on uh, on my Facebook thing there on um, a lead singer. Um, I can't remember the name of the band. It was like a hardcore like metal Christian band. Um, kind of a weird name, but anyway, he um, he he became an atheist, and uh, several of his uh, the band members were atheists too, and it actually uh, led to him uh, that not him being an atheist, but he ended up um, ha- trying to hire a hitman to kill his wife. Um, and wow. so he's in, he's in prison, and they did this uh, this long interview. It was really amazing. He was saying how you know he grew up in this Christian home, I think it was a Southern Baptist home. They went and did missions, and I mean they they had adopted like three kids from Ethiopia and everything. Uh, but when he went to the university, he was really into philosophy, and uh, he thought that um, taking some philosophy classes would bolster his faith. And uh, basically, he came out uh, the worse for it. I mean, he he had pretty much uh, 
I guess, had walked away from the faith, um, or at least those seeds had been planted, and uh, they were living a lie. I mean, they were claiming to be a Christian band, and they were atheists. And he went on to say, actually, probably out of the ten groups they would tour with, only one of them were really even Christian. But uh, you see that, don't you? You see that kind of at the university level. Um, when it's really tragic because, you know, philosophy is such a such a great tool for the Christian. Maybe you could talk about that for a second. Yeah, uh, that's that's an interesting thing. Strangely, the only exposure I've had to um, some good, uh, you know, philosophical principles and rules of logic, and then on top of that, the theistic arguments, the arguments for God's existence, came from my uh, my first philosophy class at uh, Middle Tennessee State University which um, I had an atheist uh, philosophy professor, and it was very much like, you know, I, I know this movie God's Not Dead is out. I, I haven't seen that yet, so I don't know if it's anything like this, but I think sometimes people think that we're creating straw men and, and stereotypes that aren't true about some professors at, at public colleges. But it was the case with me. I, I remember going into um, my first lot, my freshman philosophy class, and the first thing the professor did was to come out with a stack of books drop them on his desk with a loud thud and then say, the first thing we're going to talk about this semester is the arguments for God's existence and why they all fail. <laughs> so uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a clear bias there. And so, you know, you know we, we end up with, I think, online and in the forums and on the blogs, we end up with a lot of what I call bumper sticker atheists. Now, there are some very well-versed atheists out there. But if you've just had a freshman philosophy class, and worse still, if you've had one semester of a freshman philosophy class, depending on the school, you may, you may have uh, started down the road of indoctrination and just learned enough to kind of get yourself into some trouble. And so that sort of thing really does happen and is alive um, uh, on these campuses like that. Yeah, we're, we're at uh, Ratio Christi uh, at Winthrop University, and it's... Uh, it was definitely like that. I mean, they're they're at least they're open to to. They gave us a whole you know theater, stadium, uh, or not stadium, but uh, two hundred something seats to come and uh, do a do a talk on has science buried God. And uh, yeah, it's uh, most people have not heard uh, of Christian apologetics. Not just sad thing too is not just the the unbelievers, but even Christians uh, themselves. So um, I know you go around and kind of talk at different churches and and uh, do some stuff on apologetics. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, what is what I've tried to do that I hope is a little bit unique about my ministry is, um, you know, we, we, we have apologetics experiencing and hopefully going more into somewhat of a golden age. I mean, you know, if you can walk in now to uh, a Christian bookstore and even a secular bookstore and have a whole section devoted to it, then, then you know, that, that's good progress. I'm, I'm excited about that. But what we don't right. have, in my opinion, is enough of a connection between apologetics and evangelism. Now, that struck mm. me as odd because I, I consider myself first and foremost an evangelist and then an apologist. And it's because I think what happens oftentimes is, is guys like me and you who love talking apologetics, 
um, maybe are members of a church and they've gotten the most recent book by William Lane Craig or Mike Lycona, and then they end up sitting around after church in the sanctuary talking about what they read, and then there's nothing more to it than that. Well, if that's all you're right. doing with apologetics, that's a serious problem. And yes, so what, um, what I wanted to do was to, to come up with a way for lay people in the church to use these apologetic principles in reaching other people for Jesus Christ. Now, um, I think you and I may have spoken about this at the conference, but, you know, one of the things that often is said about apologetics is that it is pre-evangelism. And that is true in, in one sense. But what people mean by that is to say, well, it's not evangelism in the traditional sense of the word, like proclamation evangelism is what I would call, you know, what I do when I go into church, just preach, you know, uh, at an evangelistic event. But right. uh, they say, well, you know, it, it's pre-evangelism because what you're doing is kind of uh, getting the soil ready for a harvest. And um, and I, I, I understand that, but it, but I also reject one of the underlying premises there because the fact is any good apologetic presentation, in my opinion, should involve the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that is being discussed, if that is being presented – then that is, by definition, evangelism. And so I think there needs to be more of a clear connection between apologetics and evangelism, and not just evangelism among academics, but personal evangelism, where lay people are talking to their friends and loved ones about that. And so what I do, to answer your question, is when I go into a church, I set it up somewhat like an old-school revival. I mean, Sunday through Wednesday, I go in there and, and I'm preaching, although we often have time for question and answer, like happened at the one you were a part of. And, um, but, uh, but, but I'm preaching uh, these apologetics truths. And then at the end, uh, we have an appeal for people to accept uh, Jesus Christ and place their faith in him. So that um, it really is a blending of these two worlds that I, I really see no reason why they need to be divided as much as they are. So I refer to myself as an evangelistic apologist, and I'm really hoping that that phrase kind of catches on. I love that. I do. I think I think you're so right on the money there. You know, I I you see it. You you, you see it. Uh, I would hear criticisms all the time. You know, from people that didn't go to seminary that uh, you know you have these people that they go there and they're just they're kind of eggheads and they just want to sit around and talk about philosophy and not really into evangelism. And I, I always rejected that. Uh, but then I, yeah. I kind of saw there was some validity to what they were saying. And, um, you know, I've been, like I said, I was, was able to hear you hear you, uh, you do your, your sessions. And, uh, I mean, folks, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was really awesome. Well, I appreciate I think, that. Yeah, I think a lot of times I know growing up, like I said, I was, I was a pen, in a Pentecostal home, and you hear kind of, uh, you know, what you should believe and, kind of get that kind of worked up and emotionalism, but you're never, the apologetics is never brought in, and it's never preached, and I think that is what makes the, uh, your approach just so powerful, because it's, it makes sense, it's not, it's not missing uh, the legs under the table, so to speak, it's, it's got a foundation to it, and I think that's what, what helps make it uh, so appealing and, and makes sense. Well, I appreciate that. I, um, you know, I, I've always been the kind of guy that likes to run into the fight and then shoot my way out. I, 
You know, I, I'm big on preparation, but when it's time to go, I want to go. And um, that's always been how I am with evangelism. I, I, I want to jump in and see some things happen. And unfortunately, um, uh, when it comes to apologetics, uh, nobody's ever running into the fight. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's kept uh, on the border. And uh, like you said, maybe if you're an egghead or uh, maybe you just this is your personal hobby thing within your religion, you might get into it. I, I want to take apologetics, run into the evangelistic endeavor that we're in the midst of, and use it to see people uh, come to faith in Christ. And, and you know, really, one of the criticisms uh, that you often hear is, you listen to a debate, a very academic debate, and you think, well, there's no way that the people listening ever uh, absorb all of those things that they've just heard from the Christian apologist at the first, uh, the first time they listen. I mean, I don't know how you are, but I had to listen to tons of audio and read a lot of books before I understood, really, some of these arguments. But what can right. occur in that first presentation is they can see that they don't have to check their brain at the door to be a Christian. And that is what yeah. they've been told. And so even if they don't understand the arguments, they may place their faith in Christ that night because that may have been the only roadblock to their coming to faith. Yeah, I think that is, that's exactly how it was with me. You know, I had been told what to believe the whole time, but I didn't know that I, that it was trustworthy. And it was just flipping through the channels and, uh, uh, the John Ankerberg show was on, and it was a debate between Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, and it was right around Easter. And I, re- I remember wow. thinking, you know, this this atheist is going to murder this Christian because he has science, he has logic, philosophy, reason, and all the Christian has is faith. And to see Dr. Habermas just dismantle uh, Dr. Flew, um, who later became a, a, a deist, or theists, mm-hmm. um, right. it was amazing to me. I mean, I, I gave him, I embraced the Lordship of Christ that night. I mean, I was on my knees that night because I could see wow. it was true. It wasn't just, uh, you know, Sunday school stories like, no, there were reasons to believe that it was true. And my life, my life changed forever that night. Wow, that that is a powerful testimony. I, you know, I somewhat envy you that, that apologetics played a role in your uh, in in your conversion. That is phenomenal. I and, and that happened. That Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew exchange happened so many times, didn't it? And um, yeah. and it, you know, and and I still hope you know somewhere. I mean, you know, I I hope that Christopher Hitchens somewhere gave his life to Christ before he died. You know, but um, I, I hope that Anthony too. Flew came around at some point because that was so powerful. Uh, what happened in his life? I just you just want to see it come all the way home. Yeah, because ultimately that's ultimately that is the purpose. I mean, it's it's fun to have debate and dialogue and read and think on these things. I mean, I love it. That's it's my passion because I I think it makes it. I think it draws me at least personally closer to Christ. But at the end of the day, I mean, the most important thing is that people are coming to the knowledge of Christ. That's that's the ultimate goal of it. So if that's not what you're what you're doing with it, I just think that is so missing the purpose of life. Well, amen. You know, um one of the things that uh that, that I've done to try and marry that evangelism with apologetics is in the first live public moderated debate that I ever had, it was on the evidence for God's existence with um 
with a Harvard graduate, Daniel Alvarez, and it's on YouTube. People can watch it for free. But, um, but at the end of that debate, um, I, I wouldn't debate unless the pastor of the host church was willing to let me, after the debate was over, uh, give a gospel presentation and invite people to come forward to an altar and pray and receive Christ. And we saw that actually happen. And skeptics oh, no. and, uh, and church people, and I mean, you know, I've listened to a lot of debates. I'm not sure I've ever seen one that ends with an altar call. And so, uh, so you know, I, I um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. That's my heart. Yeah, that's great. You know, and uh, I, yeah, I think that's I think that is that is amazing. Uh, for people who are wanting to call in and talk to uh, Dr. Hunter, you can call in at seven six zero five four two. Three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. If you have questions on evangelism or questions on the Christian faith, you know you don't have to agree with us to call in. We'd we'd love to be able to hear from you. So, uh, Doctor Hunter, I know you you wrote a you wrote a book. Was there a specific book uh, that uh, we were going to talk about tonight that you were wanting to kind of delve into? Well, from what we've just been discussing, my newest book, Core Facts. Uh, the strategy for understandable and teachable Christian defense would really be uh, a great example of this ministry style that you and I have been discussing. Um, I, I released this book after, I think it came out just after uh, the, uh, the, the conference that I was with you at. And, um, and what this book is, is a personal evangelism training manual, basically, although it's, I mean, you can pick it up as an individual and read it as well. And um, it, it, the, the, the goal is to make these apologetic truths easy to remember and easy to explain for the layperson in the church to use in their personal evangelism with their unbelieving friends. And so it really is an example of marrying the personal evangelism with the apologetics training. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's um, I think that this goes across denominational lines uh, as well, this this type of method in this book. Uh, you know, I'm a Reformed Baptist and uh, go to SBC Church, and I this type of, of book uh, is something I would definitely use and recommend uh, other people use it. So it's not just for a, a particular sect, because sometimes I think apologetics is looked at as the Reformed camp has their view, the Arminian camp has their view. And uh, you know, I'm I'm saying as someone that is uh, reformed, this is a this is a wonderful method, wonderful approach. So I like how you've you've kind of been able to integrate um, again the methods, and and I think it goes across denominational lines uh, for for all people to use. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I really appreciate you saying that, and. Um... Yeah, well, you, you and I have talked a little bit about our minor, you know, tertiary differences here. And um, I, when I wrote the book, that was my goal. And my goal was not to win an in-house debate with other Christians that in the end ultimately wouldn't matter for the goal that I was trying to achieve. And so I put together a book that would be hopefully useful for, um, if you're an Orthodox Christian, then this book should be useful for you. I, you know, if you want to say it this way, if you're a mere Christian, <laughs> if you believe the, the uh, truth that none of us can deny and still be called in any real sense Christian, then you should be able to pick up this book and use it um, 
to uh, to defend the faith. So yeah, denomination really shouldn't make much of a difference. Uh, even you know, I'm a Southern Baptist. Even within the Southern Baptist uh, convention, if there there are slightly differing views, shouldn't make a difference. You should still be able to pick it up and go with it and use it for training in your church. Great. So. What I'll do is I will uh, I'll throw a link up on our on our Theology Matters Facebook page. So for people who are wanting uh, to get this book, they can they can well I guess they can get it off Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, they can get it on all the major online booksellers: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Borders. Um, they can get it on my website, uh, BraxtonHunter.com. In a moment of great humility, I named my website BraxtonHunter.com. and uh, <laughs> they can get it there. They, they can get it. They can get it anywhere online, and and um, and, and it's available as an ebook, so it shouldn't be too hard. Oh. Great, and we'll, we will post a link for that. So um, let's, uh, I guess let's let's get into a, a little bit. I know you have um, you have the acronym. What is it? Core. Uh, the acronym that I use in the book is the title of the book, Core Facts, and um, I'll explain that a little bit uh, if you like. Um, the, the, it's an acrostic that, uh, where each letter stands for something else, and it's a unique acrostic. The word core has to do with the arguments for God's existence. So these are some of the uh, time-tested theistic arguments uh, to show that God exists. And then the word facts all deals with the resurrection. Each letter of the word facts deals with the resurrection. So um, the reason I did it that way is, number one, it's easy to remember but then on top of that, if you're dealing with, if you knock on someone's door or you're in a coffee shop or whatever and you're talking to someone and it's clear that they uh, uh, don't believe in God, well, then you can just give them all the core facts and then discuss that with them, uh, hoping to see them come to Christ. But if you talk to someone who perhaps believes in God already, they just don't believe in Jesus, well, then you would just drop the core arguments and go with facts. And so it's, it's uh, very malleable that way and flexible uh, to the situation. And so, um, so yeah, it's an acrostic, and, and we can go through that if you want to. Yeah, definitely. We can, yeah, we can, we can do that and, and uh, tell people to grab a pen and a paper and, <laughs> and uh, write this down. So I'll let okay. you kind of lead us through that if you like. All right, so, uh, so if, yeah, if you were taking notes, for example, you might write down the left-hand side, hey, and then leave uh, space in between each letter. And so the, uh, the C in core facts stands for cause. The universe had a cause. And this would be an example of a cosmological argument for those that are maybe a little more well-versed in Christian apologetics. And then the O in core um, facts, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say real quick, your phone is, um, I'm not sure if it's if it's my end or your end, but it kind of sounds like you're underwater <laughs> when you're speaking. So I'm not sure if it's my end or your end, but I don't want the recording to, I want people to be able to hear what you're saying because it's so good. Um, okay, well, <laughs> I'll try to enunciate a little bit better. Is it still bad? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think it's I, we we can we can just go with it. Yeah, it sounds like I say it sounds uh, almost like the phone is in underwater or something. But I mean, I, I can hear what you're saying. I wasn't sure if you if it was your reception or something. But go go right ahead. Okay, I'll try I'll, I'll try to get into a little bit better location and maybe that will help. Um, okay. But um, but anyway, so the uh, the word 
so the the second letter of the is for is O and it's for order. And so the universe has order. And this is an example of a design argument. Most people are familiar with, with design arguments and things like that. And so that should be an easy one to help lay people to understand. And then chapter 3 is the universe has rules. The R in the word core is for rules. And this is a moral argument. And then in chapter 4, we talk about, we invite people to have an immediate experience of God. And so we, we, this is really a transitionary point to discussing Jesus Christ. Are you still tracking with me there? Yep. I can hear you better now, too, so you're, you're, okay. you're doing great. Great. And so then the word facts begins uh, with F is for fatal. The crucifixion of Jesus was fatal. That is to say, he genuinely died on the cross. And then, um, and then A is for appeared. Jesus appeared to others after his death. And then the C, in fact, is for committed. The disciples were committed to the point of death. That is to say they were willing to die for their belief in the resurrection. And then uh, the T, in fact, is for testimony. The testimony of man is that Jesus was raised. And then finally, the S in Corfax is for salvation. Jesus offers salvation. And so you can see how walking through those um, is it's an easy-to-remember way of, of having some talking points with someone. And then, of course, the end goal is that this person can place their faith in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. When you're using this kind of um, in real life, give us, give us some examples of, of maybe how people have reacted uh, to, to, to some of this. Well, one of the big problems, and I'm what you call a classical apologist, and I know you know what I'm talking about, but a, a classical Amen. Christian apologist is someone who argues from God's argues for God's existence and then for the resurrection. So it's kind of a two-step process. And one of right. the benefits, I think, that cumulative case apologists have over us is they, it can be a lot more of a fluid conversation. So this is one of the things I was trying to accomplish with this system. So when I've talked with people using this, which really I hammered out on the road uh, doing my evangelistic events um, in 2009, as far back as 2009, um, what I found was that, um, that this uh, gave me a good way of, of keeping control of the conversation and moving it in a direction that is beneficial um, and doesn't get us talking past each other. Um, one of the exchanges I actually include in the book as the final appendix of the book, which is a, an entire debate between myself and an atheist that people can look at and see how these, uh, these arguments work and, and, and can smoothly be applied. So, so really I would just encourage people to see it play out. Um, either watch my debate with... Um, with um, Daniel Alvarez on YouTube, or uh, or uh, pick up the book and and read the uh, and read the debate in there. Man, that sounds interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check that debate out. Um, it was funny. It was uh, it was a, a day or so ago. I met with a student uh, on campus at Winthrop who is a Christian, and um, he's interested in in Ratio Christi and apologetics. And as we started talking, he he was saying, you know, well, you can't really give arguments for the existence of God. You couldn't look at scientific 
reasons for the existence of God because, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a matter of faith. And so I spent about an hour with him going through the cosmological argument, the fine-tuning, origin of information, objective morality. And at the end of that, I said, now, you know, did I bring up the Bible, you know, one time? And he said, no, you didn't. And he was amazed that you're able to actually give a case um, for the existence of God, just using some, some philosophical and uh, scientific arguments. I've found this sure. alert when I talk to, to other Christians that they're totally unaware of this, and they're, they're really, I mean, they're normally pleasantly surprised, though there are some Christians that really despise apologetics, but have you found this as well? Like, as you're, as you're kind of running people through this, um, I mean, are they kind of blown away that there's this kind of evidence and reasons as you're, you're yes, talking Yes, as a about matter this? of fact, I'm sorry, as a matter of fact, in the debate that is included in the book, um, one of the things that the atheist there was having a real issue with was he was trying to pin me down on a definition of faith that is very fundamentalist and is not what Orthodox Christians um, have understood faith to be for the past uh, well, I mean, all the way back to the early church. Because uh, I think the idea that we have of, of faith um, and that atheists and some Christians have, unfortunately, is an idea that it's just a blind leap in the dark. You don't have any evidence. It's just what you'd like to be true, and so you go ahead and, and assume that it is true and live your life that way, maybe because of wish fulfillment or something like that. And this, of course, is not at all what most Christians would say about their faith. Even those people sitting in the pews who might even criticize Christian apologetics are still believing on the basis of something, if only their own experience with God and maybe supernatural things that have happened in their lives. And while that may not be the kind of evidence that really gets me and you going, no Christian that I know, if you really talk to them and pin them down, believes on the basis of no evidence, right? And so, um, so they, but, but atheists will often try to pin us down to this uh, fideistic um, sort of uh, way of thinking that, well, you're not even, on your own worldview, you're not even supposed to be doing this because, um, because you're, you know, it's faith after all, right? Now, my, my explanation of what faith is, I mean, this is, a, I mean, the same word is, is the word for trust. And I, I think we trust, and it's often future-oriented. We're trusting that in the future God's going to do for us what he said he would based on what we know and can demonstrate um, on good evidence happened in the past. That's right. I like, I like that a lot. That's good. Um, there's, there's a recent discussion, I'm not sure if you've heard it, on uh, you're familiar with Unbelievable Radio with Justin Brierley. Yes, you're uh, going to reference they, the Tim McGrew discussion, right? Yes, sir. That's exactly where where I was going. Yeah. What did What did you think about that discussion? Oh, I you know I had started listening to that uh, last week, and then someone at Trinity Seminary said, "You really got to listen to the rest of this because it is a bloodbath." And I know we're not supposed to describe it that way, <laughs> but um, what we had there was an example of an atheist doing precisely what we're talking about. Now, apparently, his entire book. I haven't read his book, but apparently, his entire book is predicated on the claim that religious people just believe, uh, I forget the word that he used, because they prefer it to be true or on no evidence is ultimately the point. And I thought that Tim McGrew just did a great job of continually um, pointing out this is not what 
uh, Christians have classically believed about faith. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a work of beauty watching watching Tim agree with that. So I would recommend that also to uh, to our listeners if you've not heard that discussion with uh, Unbelievable. You can Google that. Uh, Justin Briley at Un- Unbelievable Radio, and I uh, listened to that discussion uh, with with Tim McGrew. So, sure. Well, that's good. Let's uh, let's take a break uh, for a few minutes. Let people get a chance maybe to call in if they have any questions, and then when we come back, uh, maybe we can walk through again that acronym and talk a little bit about the cosmological argument and some of the reasons uh, that we would have to be able to believe that. Uh, God's existence is, is reasonable. That that work for you? Yes, sir. That sounds good. All right. We'll go ahead and take a break, and we will be back in uh, just a moment. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Howe, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Jehovah's Witnesses, let's look at what they believe about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel from the Old Testament, who became a man in the New Testament, did his work for God, and then now is Michael the Archangel again. So he's not God in the flesh as Christianity and the Bible has always taught. What would they say about salvation? Most of these groups, in fact, I don't know any of these groups that, that, that doesn't say that salvation is by works. And, note, and Jehovah's Witnesses are very explicit that a person cannot be saved by faith alone, but has to do the appropriate works in order to be able to be with God after death. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure, standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. 
because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death. All right, and welcome back to Theology Matters. We are here with Dr. Uh, Braxton Hunter, and we are looking at uh, his book, Core Facts, and we are uh, talking about evangelism and apologetics and the need to do that and, and the need to do that well. And um, just kind of as a reminder here, again, I, I said earlier in the show, uh, July 15th we will be hosting a debate uh, between Nathan Taylor and Chris Bate from RethinkingHell.com uh, on the issue of uh, annihilationism. Is uh, is hell et- uh, eternal, or is the um, annihilationist view correct that uh, people will not suffer in an indefinite amount of time for eternity? Uh, so that debate again, July fifteenth, Chris Date and Nathan Taylor. So that will be a that'll be a good debate. Uh, Chris Date was on here before. He debated Mike Willenborg uh, on that issue, and it was a good discussion. Um, and so we'll look look again for more of that uh, with this debate coming up in July. So with that being said, uh, Dr. Hunter, are you there? I am. I'm still here, and hopefully, I don't sound like I'm underwater. No, you sound very good. You sound great. <laughs> uh, so let's uh, maybe let's let's look a little bit at the cosmological argument. I know that's kind of a big word. Maybe people are not really familiar with those terms. Let me say this too, really quick at the outset. If anybody wants to call in and and has a question, you can call in at seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. We'd love to hear from you. And the chat room will be open too. What is what is the cosmological argument, Doctor Hunter? Well, there are a number of cosmological arguments, and um, as you know, uh, this is one of the more powerful um, uh, scientific and philosophical arguments for uh, the existence of God. And, and before I, we really get into it, I'll, I'll just say this uh, personally. Uh, every apologist is a little bit different in what they think about the strengths of given cases. And I just, I just have to say, I think that the cosmological argument is as close to a slam dunk for God's existence as we get with the theistic arguments. I've got a lot of confidence in certain versions of cosmological arguments. And so the one that I included in my book is one that is very popular now. It's known as the Kalam cosmological argument. And um, uh, I really think there are two steps to this argument, but I think both of them are good for lay people if they can just devote themselves to it because it's based on things that you don't have to have any prerequisite knowledge for. Uh, You don't have to go read any books. You don't have to go interview anybody. If you're a lay person, these things are immediately accessible to you if you just think about them. And so the first step would be to state the case formally. And so the formal cosmological argument would be, one, premise one, everything that begins to exist must have a cause. There's the C in the word core facts, a cause for its existence. And then premise two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, three, the universe must have a cause for its existence. Now, when you just state that argument like that, um, you know, people might argue with either of the two premises that, that come before the conclusion, but ultimately, even if we granted that, all it's left you with is, is the fact that the universe 
must have had a cause for its beginning. Um, it doesn't really give you what that cause or who that cause is. I don't hear a lot of Christian apologists say it this way, but I call what comes after that more like the second phase of the Kalam cosmological argument. So once you've shown that everything that begins to exist must have a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, then you have to ask yourself some simple questions. Well, what, what must this cause be like? Can we know anything about the cause? Well, yeah, I think we can know a couple of things. Um, we can know some things about what the cause of the physical universe must have been because something cannot bring itself into existence, right? That seems like a pretty sound um, uh, metaphysical principle. And so um, what is the universe made of? Because whatever the cause of the universe is must not be made of or be comprised of the things that the universe is comprised of. So the universe is basically time, space, and matter. Time is an aspect of the physical universe, as is space and matter. So uh, whatever the cause must have been must be a timeless, or this is where I use the word eternal, and spaceless and non-material cause. I think Frank Turek was actually saying something about this in a commercial you had a minute ago. Um, right. but, um, so, so you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material uh, cause of the universe and it had, to be, it had to have a mind because it had to decide to create something from nothing. Now, we've only been talking about the cosmological argument here for maybe less than two minutes, and already I think we have a God that sounds very much like the God of, uh, of, of Moses that's mentioned here. So I think, um, I think that is a simple way of putting the case. Obviously, there's a lot of objections, and we cover all of those in the book. But, but I think that's a simple way of stating the case, and I think it's pretty strong. Yeah, so let me ask you this. What do you do, because I get this objection uh, a lot from Christians, even Christians that should know better, but they'll say, um, well, that's, uh, that just gets you to the God of Aristotle. That doesn't get you to the God of the Bible. Uh, that's just, you know, we're not called to just believe God exists, but we're called to believe in the God of the Bible. So how do you, how do you answer that criticism? Right. Well, first of all, I agree with that, but I don't see it as a criticism. <laughs> um, the cosmological, everything in the word core that I use, remember, remember as I said at the top, the, the core uh, uh, acrostic deals with arguments for God's existence, and then, of course, facts deals with resurrection. And so if, if all I did was give the cosmological argument, and then I never talked at all about Jesus, well, then I don't think I've done a faithful job uh, giving an apologetic appeal. Now, William Lane Craig or somebody like that who may be having a debate just on the, the arguments for God's existence, yeah, I mean, that's fine. I mean, that's what he's there to do. But since I have a self-designated mandate to evangelism to my apologetics, I'm going to argue for the resurrection later on as a second step. And so, right. um, so I agree. I would agree with the skeptic. Yeah, all this gets you is what's called the philosopher's God. But you've got to follow that up with some enriching resurrection case later. Yeah, it seems to be faulting the argument uh, for doing something it's not, intended, it's not intended to get you to the Trinity <laughs> right off the bat. Right, right. <laughs> right that's right. So, that's right. All right, that's, that's good. So that's the, the, the C in core facts. What is the, the O? Talk to us about that again. The O in core facts deals with the order of the universe, specifically that the universe is incredibly well-ordered for life. 
And um, so this is, you know, more intermediate apologists or advanced apologists listening will know that this is a teleological argument or a design argument. And um, so, uh, so that's what we do there. We argue that the universe is incredibly well-ordered. And I use uh, William Lynn Craig's design argument. Um, I think it's a good one. And uh, Craig's argument says that the universe is, came to be incredibly fine-tuned or well-ordered for life either because of physical necessity, that is to say that it just had to be this way, there was no way the universe could have existed and not been life-permitting, or that it happened to be this way by chance, or that it is this way because of intelligent design. And I would add, to use my language, because someone ordered it well for life. And so, um, and so then what th that puts the skeptic into a position where they have to criticize uh, the argument by saying, well, it, it actually uh, could be the case that the universe is incredibly well-ordered because it just had to be this way. I mean, maybe that's true. But, of course, um, I'm no physicist, but physicists uh, can give us examples of why that's not true. And, of course, we intuitively know that it doesn't have to be that way. Now, I'm going to use an analogy in a way that often young earth creationists use it in arguing against evolution, but I'm not using it in that way. But, um, but let's imagine that, uh, uh, that um, a house was exploded by some bomb, and this, this house was exploded, and uh, wood and glass and metal just went flying all over the neighborhood. Now, would we ever say that the reason that this particular piece of wood landed here and that piece of glass landed there is because that's just the way it had to be. There's no other way it could have landed anywhere else. Well, no. I mean, intuitively, we realize that it's consistent with explosions in houses for glass and metal and wood to go in all kinds of wild directions. So the case that it happened because of physical necessity, I think, fails. And they might say, well, it happened this way merely by chance. And uh, the idea that it happened merely by chance, I think, is also um, just a, a seriously flawed way of trying to handle it because, after all, even the atheists who argue this way, uh, you know, guys like Stephen Hawking, for example, will admit that it is incredibly unlikely. I mean, it's, it's almost uh, unimaginably unlikely uh, that it would turn out this way. Any other case, we would never... Uh, say that, that this happened merely by chance. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everyone that I quote in my book, but I agree with the quotes, and that's why I quote them. And so um, I think uh, there's a great quote I have in the book by Hugh Ross, who you probably know from, from his ministry. But um, he eloquently describes the chances of this occurring without design like this. He said, quote, one part in 10 to the 37th power um, is is such an incredibly sensitive balance that it is hard to visualize. And by the way, that one part in 10 to the 37th power is the chances of just getting one of the things that we need for the universe to be life permitting. And he says the following analogy might help. Cover the entire North American continent in dimes all the way up to the moon, a height of about 239,000 miles. In comparison, the money to pay for the U.S. federal government debt would cover one square mile less than two feet deep with dimes. Next, pile dimes from here to the moon on a million other continents, the same size as North America. Paint one dime red and mix it into the billion piles of dimes. Blindfold a friend and ask him to pick out one dime. 
the odds that he will pick the red dime are 1 in 10 to the 37th power, and this is only one of the parameters that is so delicately balanced to allow life to form. So clearly I think the chance case fails away. And so all you're left with is intelligent design. That is ridiculous. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Ro, uh, Dr. Ross actually has a book called uh, Why the Universe is the Way it Is, where he specifically deals uh, with the with the anthropic uh, principle. What I love about this argument is uh, one of the first debates I was introduced to was uh, William Lane Craig and Frank Zindler. I'm sure you remember this debate. Yes, yes. And uh, Zindler, of course, is the biologist, and he keeps trying to pound home evolution. And I love this this uh, this argument because what Craig did was actually turned it around, and uh, w- was saying, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm actually a young Earth creationist, so I'm not an evolutionist, so don't send me hate mail, people. But Dr. Craig actually <laughs> said, look, even if evolution was was true, even if that uh, if even if that happened, the anthropic principle would uh, because you couldn't have life without that, evolution would actually be an argument for the existence of God. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I thought that was brilliant, you know, because a lot of times people think that evolution is just the, uh, it's it's the showstopper. As soon as someone, you know, can uh, pull out evolution, then, then somehow that disproves the existence of God. But, Again, as Dr. Craig demonstrates uh, through both the cosmological and anthropic and even the origin of life, biological evolution, that is way down the road uh, and is really irrelevant God exists or not. Right. I I agree 100%. And in fact, um, in the book, and this may disappoint people, I may be hurting my sales to say this, but um, even though I, like you, am not a theistic evolutionist, I, I am not a theistic evolutionist, in the book I actually say in, the, in this chapter, uh, look, I know that a lot of people think that Christian apologetics is all about debunking. Oh, are, are, you, are you there, Braxton? All right, I think we may have may have lost uh may have lost Braxton, uh but I'm sure he will be calling right back in and uh, we'll continue the discussion, but I th- I think what he's saying is is and it's true is we get so hung up on evolution. Again, folks, I don't believe in evolution. I think I mean I and again it goes down to what do you mean by evolution? Um so yes, I believe uh things change and we've had Dr. Weil on, we've had um, other other ID people on. We have Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute on once a month. So I, I'm not saying I at all believe in uh, Dar- Darwinian evolution. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but the idea that if if Darwinism uh, was was true, somehow that would uh, disprove the existence of God, is is just foolish. That's just not the case. So Dr. Hunter, uh, uh, we lost you for some reason. <laughs> There. Can you hear me? Well, okay? yeah, uh, I, yeah, we're we're back now. But I wanted to just say on that, uh, I I think that these discussions about evolution and um, and debunking evolution are great. Discussions about what should be taught in public school classrooms are great. But you can make a great design case while completely avoiding the question of biological evolution. Right. 
Yep, I think that's the thing. I think once you get hung up on, well, uh, you know, if evolution's true, then God doesn't exist. It may, you know, it may be such that it would cause a problem with whether the Bible was inerrant or something. But Bible aside, for the existence of God, it's it's really irrelevant. And you have people like Alistair McGrath, some pretty stout uh, theologians, and uh, Roman Catholics as well, who are also withhold to uh, theistic evolution. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't be- believe it. I think there's some real theological problems with it. Um, but I think the biggest issues are the, some of the scientific issues. But as we say, you know, it's just irrelevant to whether um, God is the first cause or you know, the anthropic principle. It's just those two alone just, I think, just take evolu- biological evolution right out of the game. And the atheists themselves, one of the things they always criticize when you're dealing with the origin of life is, hey, that's not evolution. Evolution doesn't uh, even get into that until life is already here. So if that's the case, then you can't have it both ways and say uh, somehow evolution disproves the existence of God. Right, and I, you know, I don't want to steer us too far abroad, but um, I think what happens many times with atheists, and maybe there's an atheist listening to the program, and this is what happened to you, but I think what happens is sometimes we take something like an issue like biblical inerrancy or evolution um, and place our beliefs about those things so close to the center of our web of beliefs that if one of those is shown uh, to be different than what we think, then everything else falls apart. When right. at the center of my my web of beliefs is my belief in God, my belief in the, uh, the the resurrection, actually closer to the center would be things like my belief that I myself exist, things like that. Um, so <laughs> if I found out that God didn't exist, oh well, my whole world is going, my whole worldview is going to come. Uh, spinning out of control. But if I found out that evolution were true, while that would be very disappointing and I would have a hard time understanding exactly how I missed it or or how it all works or whatever, it wouldn't mean that God doesn't exist. And it wouldn't mean that uh, the resurrection didn't happen. But a good example of this happening is, I think, Bart Ehrman, not with with, uh, evolution, but with biblical inerrancy. Um, Bart Ehrman is an agnostic, outspoken uh, enemy of the faith, you know, he, he debates like Kona and Mike Lycona and people like that. And he says what happened to him was he found what he thought was a, uh, a discrepancy in Scripture, and so his whole Christian worldview came falling apart. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think there are discrepancies in Scripture, but if there were, it wouldn't mean that God didn't exist or the resurrection weren't true. So I think with all these things, you just have to keep it in perspective. But the bottom line is, as you rightly say, the design argument can be made from the early conditions of the universe, um, from, from the fact that we're at a privileged place uh, for life to emerge and uh, things like that, and none of that has to do with biological evolution. Right, absolutely. So there you have at least two very powerful, powerful arguments. Um, did you have anything more to say on that, or did you want to go to the R? No, I, yeah, I, we better move on or else people won't have any reason to pick up the book, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, the the R in Core Facts uh, deals with rules. And so uh, the name of the chapter is The Universe Has Rules. And specifically, what I mean there is uh, the, the universe has moral rules specifically for humans. And so this is an example of the moral argument, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Probably a lot of your listeners are. Right. 
Are you still yeah, there? Probably. Still got you. Okay. Yes, I and you got so, um, so, so we lay out the case here, basically, that, that is a part of many um, uh, apologetic endeavors, that uh, it seems to be the case that uh, our moral principles, our, our knowledge, for example, that torturing children for fun is a bad thing, is objectively true, that that is a bad thing, like 2 plus 2 equals 4 is objectively true. And so that it's not a matter of opinion. To make it especially um, clear for lay people, I actually say in the book that when you think of objective things, things that are objectively true, that is something akin to matters of fact. So when I say it's a matter of fact, that means that something is objectively true, whereas uh, subjective things are like matters of opinion. So I'm a bald-headed man, so as much as I'd like it to be objectively true that bald-headed men are more attractive, I recognize that's a matter of opinion, right? <laughs> and um, so, so, uh, so, but if it is the case that, that moral values and duties are objective, that is to say that it really is objectively uh, good to build wells in Africa for thirsty people um, and objectively bad to torture people with no reason, if that's really true, then what we have is a good case for God's existence because if God doesn't exist, well, then who's to say that those things are good or bad? It would just become subjective, a matter of opinion. So if you really believe those things are, that there really are, morally speaking, good and bad things, and, and, and that sort of, of idea, then you have to believe, I think, I would argue, that there is a God. And, of course, atheists go out of their way to try and develop some uh, uh, godless basis for objective moral values and duties. And so far, um, guys like Sam Harris, who have worked on that, and others, I think, have either tried to go in a different direction or have failed in their attempts. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that as well. So objective morality or objective moral values, that's, that's a powerful uh, it's a powerful argument. I know Dr. Craig will say things like, uh, you know, not torturing babies for fun is about as obvious as, as 2 plus 2. It just seems very uh, intuitively, <laughs> at least, true, kind of, kind of obvious there. How about the ESP? That's right, and one, one of the – I'm sorry, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go, one go of right the, ahead. One, well, one of the things that um, skeptics will say, and in fact, one of the things that your listeners that might leap into their mind is, well, okay, well, if there wasn't a God, then why couldn't we just say um, we decide as a culture what is right and wrong, and then that's our objective basis for morality. Um, the problem is that's still subjective because though it is the case right now in America that the buying and selling of marijuana, for example, is becoming more and more uh, an acceptable and legal thing in certain places. In most places in the United States, it's still illegal to buy and sell marijuana, right? So, um, so we say, well, it's objectively true uh, that it's a bad thing to buy and sell marijuana. Well, not exactly, because if you get on a plane and fly for a few hours to Amsterdam, what do you find? That it's, it's okay to buy and sell marijuana, right? So you find right. out that, guess what? The buying and selling of marijuana is subjective, and it's based upon where you're at at a given time. To ground objective morality in, uh, in, in, a, in a culture or in evolution or in something apart from God ultimately fails because we're really left with a matter of opinion, even if it's an entire culture or nation's opinion about this. That's great, yeah, because really if you think about it, uh, 
if uh, you live in a society, and I will ask atheists this sometimes, if 20 years down the road America decides that it's uh, okay to kill all atheists, <laughs> is is that okay then? Is that morally okay? Because the majority agrees to it. And, uh, yeah, most of them... Most of them don't think so. Right, or take a culture that already exists where uh, there's a certain degree of denigration toward women like we see in some Muslim areas. Uh, is, is a liberal uh, 21st century atheist going to say, well, then that is a good thing because they view it to be a good thing? Well, of course not. You know, Of course not. Okay. And, and the classic example is a situation wherein uh, Hitler had won World War II and succeeded in exterminating anyone who disagreed with him, so that all that's left is people on earth who think that uh, genocide is a good thing. Would it then be a good thing? Well, obviously not, right? So if you want right. to check morality, you've got to, you've got to go to God. You know, one, you know, one of the biggest objections, probably the biggest objection to the Christian faith is the problem of evil. But if objective morality is not true, there is no problem of evil. So I think that the problem of evil actually turns around and, and it's actually one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God. Because if there is an objective morality, you don't have a problem with evil. You're right. In fact, you can make an argument uh, for God's existence from evil, from the existence of evil. And so I think you're right. absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's always a way to avoid the moral argument, or at least seemingly avoid it, by just simply saying, well, I realize that it makes me sound like a real scoundrel, but I just simply deny that uh, morality is objective in this way. Um, and, of course, I, you know, the, the response to that, I, I think the best response I've heard, um, uh, I think William Lane Craig used it, but he cited someone else, and I don't know who it is, so I don't know where this came from exactly. But um, if someone just denies objective morality, then you can respond by saying, well, here's the thing. A good argument should involve what's known as plausibility. That is to say, something is plausible if it's more likely to be true than false. So a good argument has premises that are plausible. And so, um, uh, the, so uh, objective morality exists because our immediate experience, our immediate knowledge of objective morality and the truth of it is more powerful than any premise of any argument that would seek to show that morality is not objective in this way. Mm. Wow. That that is that is that is awesome. It's it's if the price of atheism is you end up having to reject objective moral values or uh then I don't think it's worth the purchase at all because it's right. just it doesn't it doesn't explain that at all. How about the E? Right now, one now one ca caveat to this, and I know we probably need to move along, is oh, yeah, uh, I'm constantly. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, go go right ahead. I'm I'm constantly amazed that so many times in debate, very academic scholars who are atheists will will misunderstand the moral argument and think that what the Christian apologist is saying is that um, if you don't know God or if you're not a Christian, well, then you can't be good or do good things, and you're just going to be some awful heathen out here somewhere uh, torturing children or something. And uh, Christopher Hitchens, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but consistently misunderstood the moral argument in this way. That is not what we're saying. 
atheists can be, morally speaking, from a human perspective, good or bad people, and Christians can be good or bad people, and the fact that atheists can be very morally good people actually makes the point that the moral argument is driving at, which is to say that we all understand that certain things are good and certain things are bad, right? So it's important to make that caveat because I've never heard, I've yet to hear the moral argument discussed where that did not become a misunderstanding. Yeah, it's almost uh, almost like the Kalam, where that's uh, everything that exists as a cause type of a misstatement. But, but one funny thing with that, and I, I agree with what you said, but one funny thing, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you've seen the clip where um happened recently where Robbie Zacharias is being asked questions, and uh, one of the atheists brings this up, and he's saying, so you're, you're saying that if you don't believe in God, uh, you can't be a good person, and if, if people don't believe in God, they're... You know, why do you really think people are just going to go around and start raping people and and killing people? Is that really what you believe? And uh, and Ravi Zacharias asked him. He says, "Well, do you lock your doors at night? You know, obviously <laughs> right. you do lock your doors at night because you you know that there is that possibility of people doing that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's like you say, it's it's the difference between epistemology and ontology, whether how we know it, it and whether there is a grounding for morality. So right, right. There's an is and ought there. But um, but yeah, you're absolutely right, and I, I agree 100 percent with what Ravi says. That's not really, I mean, because that speaks to the existence of evil, which then, like you said a minute ago could even be rolled into an argument for God's existence from moral evil, right? So, um, but yeah, so I guess we probably need to move ahead, don't we? We've dwelt on the moral argument for a long time. That's just because we're such morally uh, good people and interested in that. Yeah, don't don't uh, don't let my wife talk to you then. She'll, she'll definitely set you straight <laughs> on that one. <laughs> right, right. What is the E? What is the E? Okay, so on the E, what we're talking about in Corfax is um, having an immediate experience of God. Um, and now, this is a little bit different. I was just doing an interview about Corfax um, on another podcast, Deeper Waters, with Nick Peters, who is Mike Lycona's son-in-law. And he was saying, I'm with you so far, but this experience thing is hard for me because you're appealing to people's personal, intuitive, uh, uh, or internal experience of God which is not available to outsiders who you're trying to reach. And that's absolutely right. And so I make clear in that chapter that what I'm doing there is not trying to give people an argument for God's existence that they share with others based on their own internal experience. But instead what I'm doing is saying, look, we've just given you three great evidences for God's existence. And on the basis of what we've discussed so far – Go ahead and open yourself up to the possibility that God does exist by uh, being open to an experience with him. Now, in that chapter, I do talk about um, religious experiences and the fact that the majority of the people in the world, uh, history of the world, have believed in God and all these other sorts of things. But ultimately, the point is you as a listener need to be open now to having your own experience of God if you're going to uh, intellectually do justice to the possibility of God's existence. Right, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like you say, it's not going to be an apologetic argument, but it certainly would be consistent with the existence of God, wouldn't it? Right, and one of the things that's going to be a little bit different about my approach, is, I mean, there are other apologists that, that kind of take that maneuver, but one of the things that's going to be different about my approach is because 
I'm trying to incorporate evangelism directly into the apologetic enterprise, um, there are going to be some things here that are going to be somewhat invitational or even emotional um, with respect to the listener. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because we are not just intellectual people, but we are experiential and emotional people as well. So there's going to be a little bit of an augment to my approach. I like that. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think I think I think if you miss that, then you're not you're not you're missing it. You're not getting the full uh, the full deal on that. I'm I'm totally with you on that. Let's see. Let's uh, let's move to the to the to the facts part. And uh, this is okay. this is good. So we've got some so, you know four strong lines of uh, argumentation for the existence of God. And now, of course, uh, and this would we would also, and I'm sure you would agree, this this is monotheism, right? This gets you to you know Islam, Judaism, or Christianity. This the cosmological argument, uh, the Kalam specifically, that is gonna that is gonna put pantheism right to bed uh, because well, they right. believe, yeah, yeah. So and this you know you, you know uh, that that's a good point because some people say, well, you've written a book here for people to use apologetics for evangelism, but um, you're really just aiming at atheists and agnostics. And while that's true in one sense, the fact is, once you understand these arguments, they really do work with other competing worldviews, or at least some of the principles involved uh, deal with uh, responses to other competing worldviews. So uh, I think that's right. But moving forward with facts, the word facts, now we're moving into the, the discussion of the resurrection and the case to be made there. And, um, and the word F in facts is for fatal because the crucifixion of Jesus was fatal. Luke 23, 46 says, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus died. But I think using some simple tools of proper historiography, we also come to understand that there's good reason to believe that Jesus died on the cross. And so a lot of scholars um, uh, accept that. One of the reasons that they accept that is because we have other very early testimony from outside of the church uh, to the, the death of Jesus on the cross. Cornelius Tacitus, um, who is the greatest historian of ancient Rome, uh, mentions it. Uh, 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 Mara Bar mentions it. And we have others, and of course, within the text of Scripture themselves, uh, people want to say, well, you shouldn't use the Bible because that is, um, uh, those are biased Christians. But looking for someone who believes in the resurrection and has a good record of it who is not a Christian is somewhat like trying to find someone who can give you eyewitness testimony about a car crash who doesn't believe the car crash actually existed, right? <laughs> so, right. Um, so while I wouldn't rely solely on the text of Scripture, they are our primary sources, and, um, and, and, and from them we get multiple independent attestation of this. We have, uh, you know, the principle of embarrassment. There's things mentioned here in recounting the resurrection that would be personally embarrassing to the disciples uh, who would be the ones who made up the, the Christ myth, if that was the, the case. And so I, I think when you apply these proper tools of historiography, what you come away with is a good case that Jesus really uh, was uh, dead and, of course, later we'll argue uh, was raised from the dead. Yeah, I, I think too. Um, well, we got a boogie too. We only got a little under nine minutes, but I think too that uh, when people say that you can't trust the Bible because it's 
they're obviously biased and that I think that they're they're begging the question because they're assuming that um, they're not Christians because of the resurrection, right? It's like it, it might be the reason that they're Christians is because that stuff really happened, and they're kind of kind of right. Assuming, and, oh, they're of course they're that, saying that because they're Christians, right? And 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 in doing in trying to expedite this because I know we've got a time uh, a time you got to meet on this. You're you're articulating exactly what we end up saying in. Um, a and C of the word facts, because the, the the letter A stands for the appearances. Jesus appeared to others later, and of course, uh, they were willing to uh, they were willing to die for their faith because they actually believed what they said, and of course, that's why they recorded it in the pages of Scripture. So I think that makes your point very nicely. Right. So so you say uh, the the second point with uh, appear um, A is the appearance of Christ to others, and that. Uh, let me make this distinction for us, because you hear this all the time. People will say, well, look at the people with 9-11. You know, they blew themselves up because uh, they believed it. They died for for a lie as well. So what's uh, what's the difference between the Christian and those, uh, or the apostles, I should say, and those who blew themselves up at 9-11? Sure, that's one of the um, the objections we handle in the book. And... Um, there's a staunch, there's a very clear difference between suicide bombers at 9/11 and uh, those who were willing to die in the first century for their Christian faith. And the difference is this: those in the first century, many of them, particularly the apostles and those who were there in first, mentioned in First Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the 500 plus people that saw the appearance of Christ. And by the way, as you know, First Corinthians 15 is considered to be uh, very early in the 50s, mid-50s A.D., and is considered to be historically reliable by even enemies of the faith, not that they believe Jesus really appeared, but that 500-plus people thought that he appeared. And, um, right. and, and the difference here is that those people were willing to die for something that, if it was made up, they would have been in a position to know that and were willing to die anyway, whereas those, who, those Muslims who flew the planes into the towers yeah, sure, they were willing to die, and they genuinely believed it, but they were not in a position to know whether or not what the Koran says is actually true. They weren't eyewitnesses to any of the things mentioned there. So there's a difference there um, between people who die for all kinds of crazy things that they actually believe and the early Christians who would have died for something they would have known to be false. People just don't do that, would be my argument. And so I think that handles that objection nicely. Great. Uh, let's move on then to the um, to the to the C. Okay, the C in fact deals with the commitment level of the early church. The A is the appearances, and we really, in case you want to save some time, the C is really what we've just been talking about. The disciples were committed to the point of death. We see that uh, scripture clearly says that in Acts 8, 1, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions. So scripture teaches that. We have pretty good historical evidence that that occurred. I mean, nobody's really questioning that the Christians were, were dying in the first century without getting some stiff responses from Christian apologists. So, um, so yeah, I think the A and the C go nicely together, and it'd probably be beneficial with our time to move on to the T in facts. Let's do it. And the T uh, deals with the testimony um, of the world, I think, is to the lordship and divinity of Jesus Christ. So the name of the chapter is, The Testimony of Man is that Jesus was raised. 
Um, and in that chapter, what I do is look at the history of the world, the fact that Christianity has impacted, the person of Jesus has impacted the world in an incredibly powerful way, such that uh, cultures, entire cultures have been changed, um, institutions of higher learning and science have been started, and um, all of this from a man who never traveled, so far as we know, that far from his home, never, as far as we know, wrote anything down, and yet he has impacted the world in such a powerful way. And on top of that, the testimony of the Gospels, we go into more detail there and look at why they can be considered historical. And then the testimony of scholars today, atheist scholars today, who believe everything we've said in F, A, and C, that Jesus really did die, that people thought he appeared to them, and that the, the, the early church was willing to die for this belief. Um, a good example of that is a liberal Jewish scholar named Paula Fredrickson explains, quote, the disciples' conviction that they had seen the risen Christ, their permanent rec- relocation to Jerusalem, their principled in- inclusion of Gentiles as Gentiles, all these are historical bedrock facts known past doubting about the earliest community after Jesus' death. So we have uh, people who are very critical of Christianity who are yet admitting that what we've said in F, A, and C is really true. And all I want to say is, if you believe that testimony, well, then just go ahead and make the final step and say the best explanation of this is a resurrection. And then that brings us to S, which is salvation. And so if you believe all these things, the most reasonable thing, I argue, is that you place your faith in Christ. That is great. That is that is very, very powerful. I think that uh, people see some some good reasons here. They've been given several reasons, not only to believe that uh, God exists and particularly monotheistic God, but once you tax the resurrection on that, um, that that is the game changer, so to speak. That is what uh, separates uh, Christianity from from every other every other system. So tell us again, uh, we've got about a minute here. Tell us again about your uh, your website. If people want to get a hold of you, um, how can they do that? Oh, I appreciate that. There are two ways you can follow our ministry, uh, braxtonhunter.com, B-R-A-X-T-O-N-H-U-N-T-E-R.com is my website. Got a blog there, got some videos and debates on there, and you can get the book there too. And then um, trinitysem.edu, trinity, S-E-M for seminary, .edu is our school's website, and we have a blog there where I actually am a lot more active than on my own site. So you can go to trinitysim.edu, and the bottom left-hand side of the page, you can click on the link to the blog and uh, and just uh, sink your teeth in there. All right, great. And uh, we will definitely uh, we'll put a, put a link up to that, um, to your book, and I uh, would like to have uh, people purchase that book, folks, because as you see, uh, sometimes, you know, as we're, we're talking with people who are not Christians and they're saying, well, why do you believe that the Bible is true or why do you believe God exists? Because those are going to be the two biggest objections. Uh, sometimes you freeze because, well, it's just there's from um, you don't know where to start. This is perfect because it gives you right away, if you can remember the acronyms, um, and, and you could, you could, you could easily memorize that in a day. Uh, you'd, you'd right off the bat, you'd have four lines of evidence for the existence of God, and right away have uh, another four uh, lines of evidence for the resurrection. So 
or three lines of, of evidence for the resurrection. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's, uh, I would recommend people buy the book. And uh, Dr. Hunter, it's great talking with you. Would love to get you back on the show again. Well, thank you so much, and I'm so excited to see what God does in the future with your uh, apologetic ministry. Well, I really, really do appreciate that, and and uh, thanks for taking your time, and tell your family we said hello, and hopefully we'll get to see you again soon. <laughs> thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right, brother. God bless. All right, folks, and that is, uh, that is it for Theology Matters. We really appreciate... Uh, Appreciate you guys taking your time to come and, and listen to us and hear us out. We hope that the show, uh, you know, we hope it's, it helps. We hope that uh, you guys are getting equipped uh, as you're listening to it and it's making an impact. Uh, we have uh, we have a lot of great shows coming up, and so I uh, would definitely, you know, recommend that uh, you guys tune in next week. So I'm trying to, yeah, next, uh, let's see, next Thursday will be July 3rd, and we will actually be having Dr. Sadler back on. We're going to uh, continue our discussion on uh, St. Augustine, and uh, we've already looked at his view of truth. Um, uh, second show, we did a whole show on Augustine and the problem of evil. So this, this next show, we're going to finish up with Augustine in our philosophy series uh, on his view of the nature of God and nature of God's existence. The 10th, we will be having uh, Neil, uh, Neil Shenvey come on, and we'll be doing a discussion on uh, the resurrection and uh, uh, kind of a historical case for the resurrection. And then the 15th, we will be having that uh, big debate with Chris Date and Nathan Taylor on uh, the issue of annihilationism. And then the 24th, we will be having Pastor Jason Wallace from Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, on the show, and he's a he's a brilliant guy. So, folks, we appreciate you joining us, and uh, look forward to meeting with you all again uh, next week. And uh, until then, uh, we pray that God greatly blesses you, and you have a wonderful week. Pray that you have opportunity to to share your faith this week. Right, as we've been talking about on this show. It's not just about getting head knowledge, but it's also about being ambassadors for Christ. Thanks again. Appreciate you guys joining us, and we will see you again next time. God bless.